Yeah, absolutely. Um, for example, if we go at the, the question of uh, <coughs> endangered languages, uh, like people talk about endangered species, they talk about endangered plants, they talk about endangered, you know, fauna, but very rarely is it recognized that we have a, a very serious problem, not only within Canada, but on the world scale of endangered languages, right? Similarly, we have a question of, of nations. All of these are features of, you know, what you call globalization, what I call imperialism. The question of who speaks what language has never been based on demographics, that is on the basis of numbers, but on the basis of power, all right? So in I give the example in India, you have uh, uh, English as a national language of India. And in Canada, you have English and French as national languages of Canada. Uh, but in the provinces, nine of the 10 provinces, only English as rights. And every other province, it's access to French, French, for example, in Nova Scotia and New Brunswick, where you have Acadian people, right, is based on a law of, is based on whether or not the province passes administrative measures to provide for teaching in their language. That is, they have no right, right? You have at least 52 I believe Mike can correct me, distinct national Aboriginal languages in Canada, but they are called heritage languages. So the First Nations do not have their right. So this is all a matter of power. So if you look at your constitution uh, <coughs> of Canada, uh, the Constitution can be suspended because who is considered sovereign in the Canadian Constitution is the state, the parliament, is not people. In other words, the rights of the state do not derive from the people, okay? And it's the same in uh, Palestine. Uh, you were referring to uh, Bandistans and, and the creation of a Palestinian state, and Mohammed talked that Edward Said actually supported uh, uh, a one-state solution, okay? The, one of the significance of, of this election that has taken place in, in Palestine uh, and the election of Hamas to the Palestinian uh, National Legislative Council is that they have correlated that what was called the Oslo process the peace negotiations supervised or initiated by uh, William Clinton, the American president, um, Bar eh? yes, Arafat, yeah. yes, Arafat, and also the you know different Israeli prime ministers like Baruch and uh, Brez and so forth. It was actually like two things came through this. Actually, this was the form through which corruption permeated the Palestinian society, what is called corruption, okay? 
And this was also a method of not only disenfranchising the Palestinians into bandistans, as you mentioned. And if you want to give your students an idea, you look at page 16 of the dossier, and there's a map of uh, the West Bank. Palestine at the present time is divided into two areas, what is called Gaza, which is on the coast, and the West Bank, which is inside. And what Mohammed was talking about was the Green Line. This is the armistice that was signed in 1967, which surrounds the West Bank. Okay? So that's your outside border of that area. It's along this line, roughly speaking, that Israel is now building a wall, which is known throughout the world as the Apartheid Wall, eight feet high, uh, minimum, uh, an armed wall. And basically, it is to turn this whole area into a prison camp, which they're ready to recognize as a state. So it's the same form that uh, Mike is mentioning, uh, we're talking about in terms of uh, uh, First Nations, and uh, uh, this is uh, basically uh, what the Americans, what the English want to establish in Iraq, if not the federal state of, you know, the, the one, the unitary state of Iraq, then three states of Iraq, which will be formed on a sectarian or religious basis, a state for the Kurds, a state for the Sunnis and a state for the Shiites, right? So you have here in Palestine, one Gaza is separated from uh, West Bank, and then within the West Bank, all these circles which are on your map uh, of 16. You know, the first map that you put out, these are what are called Zionist colonies. And then between these circles and these different colonies, you have highways. On these highways, only Jewish settlers can drive. They actually have two license plates in Israel, one for Jewish and one for Arabs. So on these highways, only uh, Jews can, can drive. Now, Canada is very complicit in this. Canada, for example, is building a toll highway throughout Israel. It's called the Greater Israel Toll Highway, or Greater Trans-Israel Trans Highway, all right? And uh, it's also involved in training the police. It's also involved in uh, training Israeli, like last summer in Alberta, the Israeli Air Force was practicing in Cold Lake. <laughs> the Air Force is used to strafe in the, uh, Palestinian towns and villages. But Canada is providing them with the vast open spaces of Alberta to, uh, to military train there, okay? Now, Canada only can do this if it itself has a colonial attitude, if it itself is involved in destroying, like in the last session I talked about the politics of annexation. They are betraying our own, our own Canada, our own people, as well as the crimes that they have committed historically in terms of the First Nations and Quebec and, and so forth. So they're selling Canada out to the Americans. And 
This is the lot that they see for all nations and peoples around the world. This is why you have Canada is involved in the occupation of Haiti, why it's involved in the, the colonial subjugation of the Palestinian people, and why it's getting involved in uh, Iraq, and why it has, you know, 2,000 troops or so in Afghanistan. They do not recognize the rights of the people. Uh, so come back to your original question. It is a question of power. But with power, they have promoted a kind of cosmetic alternative, which they regard safe, right? So in terms of Palestine, uh, the, the PL, uh, Arafat and so forth, through the Oslo process, they tried to negotiate independence. And they believed that in this kind of power, right, provided to them under the Oslo process, they could achieve independence. And they, for, if you like, they forgot that their power came out of, as Mohammed talked about, the whole resistance that had been waged by the people since uh, the formation of the State of Israel as a collective struggle. This is not a struggle of individual suicide bombers. It's not a struggle of, you know, Islamic sects. Uh, people will be astonished to know that in the Palestinian elections, in the slate that is called Hamas, were Christian candidates. And I read a very interesting interview with one of these candidates who was elected. He said, us Christians and Muslims fought against Europe in, and the Crusaders in the Middle Ages. And we Christians and Muslims stand today united for the independence of our own people. And we are fighting against, you know, colonialism and so forth, you see. So you have, if you like, the straightforward imperial power but then you also have a cosmetic power or a neo-colonial power uh, that is offered to the people as an alternative, as an outlet, as a safety valve, as a, it actually forms a method of neo-colonial rule. Okay. Now the task of the peoples is to, is to, is to build their own organized and unified strength to develop their general political platforms, platforms of unity, uh, to resolve all the divisions that have created, <clears throat> that have been created amongst them, whether they're of religious nature or sex or uh, uh, of national origin or, or whatever, and uh, develop uh, solutions to the problems people have faced. And this, to me, is the characteristic of this present time. Yes, like what you said about Iran is very, is very correct. But we're actually in a period where people are tr also trying to take up the problems of uh, improving their living conditions and empowering themselves of governing their own countries. So in the forefront of this is the, in my, in my view, the absolutely heroic people of Palestine. Uh, who, at a time when the whole international community was silent, still they continued to fight. And now we also have the people in Haiti, the people in Cuba, the people in Venezuela, 
different countries of Latin America are, are, are rising. So I'm very hopeful of uh, a change in the international situation. At the same time, it's a very dangerous, very, very dangerous situation. And it's also very complicated. I was uh, surprised to hear that the Israeli Air Force was uh, training in Cold Lake, Alberta. This was news to me. One uh, of the... One of the uh, ironies or one of the indicators of the complexity of these issues that we're talking about uh, or perhaps a manifestation of how uh, colonialism can work even through um, some colonized people who become, uh, who identify with, with, the, with the process of colonization. The Assembly of First Nations, which is the most famous uh, most high-profile Indian organization in Canada. The national chief of the Assembly of First Nations, Phil Fontaine, has uh, led a delegation, an AFN delegation, to Israel and is seeking to set up diplomatic relations between the Assembly of First Nations and the country of Israel. And this has uh, astounded and uh, mobilized many Native people who look at this and say that this is a travesty that uh, as Indian people we have a, a, a natural um, alliance with the Palestinians and it's the Palestinians who are, as we've been discussing all night, are more in the position uh, equivalent to that of Indians in North America and yet here is a, uh, an Aboriginal organization and one could say that uh, it's a, an Aboriginal organization of Aboriginal elites, of uh, people who have made the Indian Act system work for them, Indian chiefs, elected Indian chiefs. So it speaks to the internal struggles. It speaks to uh, the harsh uh, realities of being colonized where, you know, in a sense you have uh, this division where some will say, well, let's deal with the imperial power, the the colonizing power, however we want to characterize it, we really have no choice. It's, uh, it's a, we're, we're in a subjugated position. Let's be pragmatic. Let's try to do the best we can with a bad situation. If we can get some little concessions, we should do that. If we can get some jobs for our people, we should do that. And then you have another faction saying, no, that's wrong. That, that undermines us. That's, uh, collaborating with, with our enemy. In South Africa, the African National Congress, uh, members of the South African National Congress used to put burning tires on those of their own people who they felt were collaborating with the white minority regime. And that would be a horrible way to die, you can imagine. Uh, so, so that division among people who have been colonized who are faced with, you know, basically a, a, a choice of bad options. It's not like you have a, a good option and a bad option. You, you usually have a, a range of difficult options. Uh, I throw that out um, for what it's worth. I don't know, Mike, if you... I, I just want to uh, share a document, a piece of paper and I found this through my files. This is the declaration of uh, once you're elected with the Blood Tribe uh, Chief and Council and the Dominion of, of Canada. 
the district what and district as according to how Indian Affairs Regional Office outline our district. Anyways, the original swearing-in document had something uh, along the line, the Government of Canada, Indian Affairs. And being the youngest, even the older people that were elected were kind of uh, uh, astounded when I said, I will not sign this document until it changes that I do solemnly declare that I will well and truly serve my people the bloods. Every part that had government or Indian affairs in the swearing-in declaration, I threw in my people the bloods, and today they're still using that. Whether it it gets any place, <clears throat> at least for me personally, it was a a peace of mind that I was not swearing oath to the government of Canada or to the colonizing arm of uh, the government, Indian, uh, Indian Affairs, Department of Northern Indian Affairs, that I was swearing to my people who elected me there. So we had to have another day of swearing in, uh, and... Uh, all of a sudden, I got the support of the chief and the other 11 councils. Yes, Mike is right. You know, are we swearing oath to the colonizers or to our people? So I like to think uh, this one pager that in my little legacy here <laughs> that uh, uh, I changed something because some of our people were accustomed to that type of of government dictatorship, leadership, direction, whatever you want to call it, but at the same time, the overwhelming power, we talk about power of colonization, of the uh, the Indian agent having exclusive authority over a group of Indians, members of a tribe, and then all of a sudden, the Jesuits or missionaries having that authority to to where I'm not even supposed to be here today, and uh, all the way to, you know, residential school, etc. So this document, uh, it gave me a peace of mind. I actually slept that night a little bit better because uh, I wasn't swearing uh, my, selling my allegiance to the government. At least uh, it kept my sanity, and it fulfilled something that, uh, you know, that it's the people that brought me there, and it goes back to this whole indigenous thinking, First Nations thinking, the people put me there, I'm for the people, part of the people, I cannot raise myself above them, it is who that I'm working for, and basically that, you know. And unfortunately, the government still dictated our revenue and capital accounts and all our policies, but at least... This sole document, I think, is still being used today. And uh, the Indian Affairs officials that were there and uh, held the Bible to me, and I said, no, I am going to hold our Blackfoot Ghana pipe. And that was the first time it had ever happened to swear on the pipe. And it's still like that. We have an elaborate swearing in ceremony in there. So... Again, it goes back to my original point at the beginning of this lecture. Spirituality does play. 
and you mentioned the loss of language, heritage language thing. You know, the whole watered-down thing of, of uh, using religion, language, uh, education, whatever, to totally assimilate us. The, the uh, cultural geno genocide machine is still moving, you know, in this day and age. And I'm assuming it's like that in all other countries that have colonized people. Tony, reaction? <laughs> um, Mike, you make me think of uh, I was uh, saying originally we have um, the Eurocentrism, what I was referring to uh, I like your phrase the uh, cultural genocidal machine uh, negates the thought material, what I call the thought material of uh, the peoples of each country. And it's on this basis that uh, we real solutions will be found. Um, when you asked if the colonizers understood, uh, and you were talking about the British lords, my family's uh, come from uh, Ireland and Scotland, and then uh, the bad side of the family comes from uh, northern England, <laughs> called the Lakes District. Uh, there's a tradition in uh, Gaelic uh, Scotland. Well, there's uh, all kinds of traditions, but one of the traditions it was uh, commemorated in what was called the Declaration of Arbareth. Uh, this was in the 11, uh, 1100s, in other words, uh, over 1,000 years ago. And this declaration is, uh, created the basis for the first time for a king, a leader of all the Gaelic-speaking Scottish people in the highlands, what's called the highlands and islands. And in this declaration, it affirms that the sovereignty is actually in the people. And this king is only leader so long as he upholds the interests of the people. So long as he defends the interests of the people, he continues as, as uh, king, as leader. The Westminster tradition is that uh, all rights flow from, uh, uh, you know, at the time of King James, royal prerogative, uh, executive decree. So we actually have the Westminster system, parliamentary system, based on executive de decree, where all rights flow from the sovereign, who is defined you know, either at the time it was the, the king, and then under Magna Carta and so forth, they provide for only those liberties, only those freedoms of the subjects that they have secured, okay? And this is actually based on, uh, becomes the basis of not only all Canadian law, but, for example, labor law 
in Canada, what they call labor law or anti-labor law, is based on this. So in labor law, the rights of the working man are only, one, privileges, but secondly, only those privileges they have wrested from the master. That is, as the labor slave, we have wrested this, like, right to grievance, right to a bargain, right to a 48-hour week, and so forth, right? <clears throat> but right to speech, right? Right to speak your mind in the factory floor. You do not have that right under labor law unless you have wrested it from the master and put it into a contract. So a lot of people today think that it was just kind of... Go ahead. Well, there's a perception in, in the language of, of, uh, of rights these days. Uh, nobody's used it in, in this discussion, but in political discourse generally, people talking about the natives being given rights by the government or being or the Palestinians being given rights, or laborers being given rights. But the fact is, uh, though, really, I can't think of an ex one example in history where rights were given out of the goodness of the hearts of the people who recognize the rights. Uh, it, it comes through struggle, but I find just a lot of the uh, complacency of, of um, people today, uh, they're so used to having these rights that they take them for granted. And, and I think one of the... Uh, Strengths and one of the things we can learn through both the Palestinian and the uh, the uh, First Nations struggles is that uh, rights, wherever they are, are never handed out. You know. Exactly. Uh, you know. I guess the the rights that are given and 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 how the the minds of of a society work. Is very interesting, you know, if we actually understand our natural rights as all of us in, as individuals, do we understand that concept of those rights that we inherited through our ancestors from long, long before? Now it's almost like we're accustomed and, and say in the Canadian mind that we only enjoy and we think we enjoy that those rights that are granted to us that are expressed through written law. Then you take the oral tradition, like an elder said, you know, how can law, written law, stop a deer from going across a river? And yet, some places it's being implied that humans have a right to control animals. And it's a good thing those deer don't understand British common law. <laughs> and and or, so... <laughs> or fish don't understand the law of the sea. <laughs> exactly. So I guess each country... We, we have this mindset, and sometimes through how we prosper through education, of the education systems of each country, and in Canada, when we say natural law, a lot of people get totally lost and confused. The law of the land. And as I can say, the land that was given to us from 
the creator of all, the maker. You know, those laws that come with absolute sovereignty, Aboriginal title, inherent rights, and when something's not uh, put into the written context, then it's not your right anymore. Then it's not acceptable, your oral land, you know, laws of the land rights, laws of the land, you know, usage, the natural laws. People don't understand that. The government does not understand that. And yet, to us, a little six-year-old understands those things, but unfortunately, they have to wear two hats every day to survive in today's world. And that seems to be the biggest misunderstanding. If I could just maybe conclude to Treaty 7, you mentioned uh, friendship and peace treaties. While Treaty 7 was just a peace treaty, we never gave out the mineral rights underneath the ground. They were not even part of the negotiations. And yet, uh, today it's happening. We are on reserves, surveyed to five per population or whatever the figure, where that figure came from, and we couldn't hunt buffalo. We couldn't uh, live the way we wanted to live. Now we're living like how everybody's living, and unfortunately our mortality rates are pretty high because of our lifestyle that has changed. And I don't know if that's even part of the plan, too. Maybe I shouldn't say that because they'll make it part of the plan, you know. And again, I go to that cultural genocide machinery. It's still there. So I just want to end on that, uh, the, the natural laws. And I don't know if uh, Mohammed has uh, any uh, feedback on just natural justice and natural laws. I just have a question oh. for Mike. Natural justice, uh, it's, it's hard to really talk about it. Uh, if you're on my personal opinion, I don't think there is such a thing as natural justice. Um, uh, it has to be brought through revolutions. Um, I think Tony um, mentioned, he, uh, he supports me with that notion uh, in the past. And
And you guys want the First Nations are looking for rights, and is because of their background, doesn't that kind of go with the ethnocentrism and stuff? And when you're asking for rights, what kind of rights are you looking for and compared to who? I guess uh, I, I wouldn't really say ethnocentrism. I guess we just want to live and express our own way that we had. We never agreed to this uh, type of government. We were never given the opportunity to live how we wanted to live. It was forced on us and dictated to us. And I think it's only a human right and a natural reaction that we can govern ourselves. We became human beings enough in 1964 to be allowed to vote in federal elections. We like to be more human because we have been dehumanized. We just want to go back to that point prior to the treaties of how we uh, survived, how we had our own government concepts and structures. We were forced into all this and we still disagree with it. And I think that's just a human, fundamental, basic right. We just want to live the way we want to live, not anybody else's culture. Yeah, that, yeah, I understand that. And that's, I agree that you guys should have your own sort of government that's, I don't know if you're looking for equal to the federal government, but I think it's a really good idea for you guys to have that kind of rights. Well, let, let me put it this way. I will be bold enough to say that I want to even be higher than the federal government because we are our own nation. You know, we are our own people. We have our own language. We have our own history. We have been here far, far longer than anybody else. So I say, why not? Let's reach for the sky. There's nothing wrong with it, in my opinion. Lisa, are you saying that sounds ethnocentric to you? Well, I didn't know how it would look because, and they're also saying that um, people who are wanting to understand what they've done, like over the years coming over, and how the British Parliament wanted to understand where the First Nations people were coming from, and they said that they didn't want to understand because maybe they want to fix the problem, look, they want to understand so they can try and almost take advantage of it again. And I think that people, like, I would love to find a way to make it so that the First Nations are um, their own nation or whatever, and I think that there are people who are trying, who want to understand and just don't understand their position. Like me, I'm trying to learn about it, and I just haven't been able to find a way to learn more. And so this is just very interesting, and I like hearing what Mike has to say about it. I guess just a quick response to that, uh, and, and don't take it personally, but, you know, the cure, the spirit, and the direction will come from the nations themselves. I'm from Ghana. I have total respect for other language groups in this country. 
the Mi'kmaq people, the uh, Cree people. I will not have that colonized thinking that I can go into another nation, another tribe to try and fix it because that's being disrespectful. I will only work with my people and my ancestors because that's how it's been done. This whole fixing, going into a community is what we've been all taught and it's very disrespectful. Can I um, just ask Melanie, uh, is there a chat going on? Can you give a, just as we get near the end here, uh, is there, can you give us a sense of uh, what is being? Yeah. Yeah. Jonathan, you're. Okay. Um, I've heard a lot of really interesting uh, topics. And I know Mike's been uh, articulated some of his ideas very well, and Lissa has also. But uh, I think too, at some point, there's some some other realities that are happening here that aren't being addressed. Um, and I can think of a perfect example, and I brought it up in other classes with Tony. I, I happen to have Cree ancestry myself. I happen to also have Scottish ancestry, um, and now I live in southern Alberta, and I'm from northern Alberta in well now Blackfoot country. So. At, at what uh, at what uh, stage do do I get uh, torn apart myself, and um, the reality that uh, I'm both gets addressed? Um, I think that's a big problem. That 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 these conflicts, the them and us and and all that, doesn't address at all. And so, um, the one state solution you were talking about earlier in. Uh, in Palestine, and you know, is that not an option here in Canada too that we've been pursuing? These are some tough questions, I think. To just uh, continue that approach, say a person is born Blackfoot, but but a person says, "That's not really that important to me. I, I'm I'm I don't see that as a real major part of my the way I see myself. I see myself as maybe a lawyer or something." I. Uh, so what about the rights of people who are born into a society to say, I, I, I'm, that's not that important to me. I, I, I want to frame my identity in another, in another way. I guess my response to that is uh, I, I, I cannot force even my relative to indulge themselves in the Blackfoot culture if they choose not to, uh, as long as they understand that once away, once they're away from the, and, it, it, and I'm not saying that physically, and that you have to be on the land base, but once you uh, de detach yourself from that cultural language group, tribe, whatever you want to call it, as long as that person realizes that, well, you're going to be part of the other society, whatever it is, and we call it mainstream society or dominant society, all those uh, terms given, but uh, the affiliation to a particular tribe, and if you identify yourself with the Creed, that's your absolute right, you know, or the Scottish thing, that's your absolute choice. Um, and, and nobody is going to, I'm not going to dictate it, and nobody should 
you know, to say, hey, you got to stay with us. Don't go over there kind of thing. And, and that's the good, about, good thing about First Nations community. There is freedom of choice, you know. And so we're not going to, uh, I guess, say, hey, you joined the other side. You're not one of us. I don't think that's really happening. And so that freedom of choice of, of who you want to identify yourself with, how you want to identify, that's up to you, you know. And whatever you feel strongly, that's your choice. And I think people have to respect that too. And that's why I keep saying the word respect, you know, people have to respect everybody else's choices. But sometimes it's easier said than done with a lot of people because they don't. Is Halifax still still in? Yes. Yeah. I, uh, let me come back to the, the question. I, I think, asked. yeah, I, I'm going to, we've got five official minutes. Um, Ryan wants to ask a question. Uh, Oh, go right ahead. Yeah, new voice. I've just got a quick question based on sort of some similar ideas. We've heard a lot tonight about inherent, sort of inherent rights of a native people, either in North America, in Palestine, in wherever, compared to the compared to the people that are coming in that are sort of invading their culture. But this applies much more to North America. We've had people of European descent for half a millennia now in North America. And I know, like for me personally, all of my, the vast majority of my great-grandparents were born here and then much further up in some parts of the family tree. So at what point do the, the people that are coming in to a region and coming into a, a sort of a culture that's already there, at what point do they start to gain the same types of inherent rights that a people that would already be present would have? that could have claim to? Like, I, I guess I can't put a measurement on inherent rights, you know, whether it's 100, 200, 300 years, whatever. But I think if you stop and think, inherent rights brings up a lot of issues. The, the land issue, the language issue, you know, the hunting issue, all those kind of issues, you know, are brought up. So, but I guess what we're saying is, you know, if the treaties were done in good faith, I don't think we'll be having a lot of these debates. I think, you know, there was a total misconception. You know, in Treaty 7, they thought there was no more war. It didn't say about giving up land. It did not say about us guys agreeing to be put on reserves. It did not say that we were going to be assimilated and Christianized and Catholicism and Anglican. It didn't have all that. And, and yet, I think that is what you sense that people are trying to clear up, hey, you know, new generation, modern generation, you kind of got to understand the past because some of those contentious issues, that's why they are today. But if there were noble, well-made, thought-out treaties, you know, then I say, okay, well, here's the treaty treaties. We negotiate that. We can't be, you know, keep bringing this up. But we're never given that opportunity, you know. And we hold the treaties very sacred. And, and the misrepresentation, the uh, prohibitions, the conditions, you know, that were in there, uh, you know, it's like, geez, we signed a treaty. Next thing there was an Indian Act, you know, that governors, we never agreed to that. 
we never agreed to be colonized. And I think that's what we're trying to say all along. And in the midst of that, I think you have to appreciate the struggles that we've had in this country as First Nations. We're still very warm, welcome type people. You know, we could be absolutely bitter and, 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 and not even participate in discussions like this or whatever. If you think what we've gone through from religion to land to everything that we've been tried to be assimilated into being so-called mainstream Canadian society, we're still laughing and humble and warm-hearted, you know. And sometimes I wonder, geez, if we're, I wonder if we're crazy, you know. If there's something wrong with us, we've suffered so much and yet we're still hospitable. And a lot of the people are like that. Sure, you got certain factions, but they don't necessarily speak for us. You know, you talk to any elder, they're more than willing to share. They're not going to say, no, you're a white boy, you're a Chinese boy, no. You know, in fact, it's getting to be that we're adopting all different people in our, our, our uh, nations, and that's just that whole total cross-cultural relationship, adoptions, whatever you want to call it. And, uh, but that's all this. We're just trying to clear history. And it's no, not the result of people coming over the last 20, 30 years, take the government of that day. What were they trying to achieve? And you think about it, it was pretty underhanded, you know. Uh, uh, Tony, can I add one thing? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so if we go to mine, can you... I appreciate the question, and I also very much appreciate the answer. My perspective is that the question of rights is not solely a question of the indigenous people as in Palestine or of the First Nations. It's a matter of humanity. Yeah. All the people in the world whether in their <clears throat> southern Alberta or Nova Scotia or Cape Breton or South Asia or South America, <clears throat> uh, we have rights. Now, why do we have rights? Because they're written in some document which is enshrined in the United Nations? Uh, because there was a treaty that was negotiated? We have rights because we are human beings. For example, why is the question of language and language rights very important? Language is what helps to distinguish us from animals. It's how we communicate with one another. This is how we become a social being. Right? So we have the right to speak in our own language. It's characteristic of how one is a human being, right? So you can see how uh, genocidal it is for the colonizer to take away the language of the colonized, whether it's of the Gaelic, Irish, the Gaelic, Scottish, right? Who are then sent to colonize to settle. Uh, uh, Canada as well as other British colonies, right? 
or of the First Nations, or of the people of Quebec, or of the Arabic-speaking peoples, and so forth. <clears throat> if you can take away the language, then you can take away the thought process of the colonized people, because the language is a repository of culture. It's a repository of the thought process of one's people, right? So, like Mike said, they signed treaties, we signed treaties, Act, but it was an under Indian Act of the black ceremonies. All the expressions of the thought process of democratic governance that was characteristic of the First Nations were suppressed. The Mi'kmaq people themselves had their own traditions of democratic governance, which is such a great alliance with, you know, historically speaking, with the Acadians. Uh, why that alliance was so feared by the, both the uh, British as, as well as the French. So we have rights by dint of being human, right? Women have rights by dint of not only being human, but because they're responsible for the production and reproduction of real life, right? So there you have a question or a concept of right of woman, which is not a matter of abortion on demand, or right to life, right? So then we're also speaking of people having rights. So Canadians as a whole, Southern Albertans, Maritimers, we have rights. And one right we have is not to be annexed by the people down south uh, without us having the sovereign say on the, on the question, right? Then as a feature of the modern times, like over the last 200 years, you have the creation of these nation states, people organized uh, on, you know, as a collective, they have rights, right? Uh, and this is what we're talking about in terms of the question of Palestine. Uh, uh, so it's not simply a matter of the indigenous peoples. People of Iraq, they also had the right to self-determination. Like the fundamental, fundamental issue in Iraq was not weapons of mass destruction or this, you know, or that about Saddam Hussein is, the people never authorized the Americans to invade. They have that right of self-determination to decide their, their, their own destiny, as do the people of Haiti, as do the people of the island Republic of Cuba, and so forth, right? So we have these rights by dint of being human. And as part of human life, social life, we form collectives. Or we are formed into collectives. Collectives of workers in factories, of the working class, so to speak, across the country. Uh, the First Nations, the nation, you know, of people of Quebec. Uh, different collectives are formed and we have uh, rights, but as, as um, Dave was saying, no rights have ever been handed to the, to the people on a silver platter. Okay. On that now. on that note, Tony, uh, just want to thank you enormously for uh, all of this uh, investment of thought and time and energy. Uh, my sense is this particular three hours here has. Uh, you know, demonstrates how you can come to live in a in a digital world. You know, we're 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 reconfiguring ourselves in in different ways. Um, 
you speak of, you know, your many generation of immigrants, some of those immigrants did become Indians. Some of those Scots who were pushed out of Scotland uh, through enclosure movement essentially became Cherokee. Many of them entered the fur trade in Canada and, and more or less became assimilated as, as, as Indians. Uh, that was the basis of uh, the political economy of New France. I mean, the majority of people in the Americas uh, have Jonathan's Métis background. The majority of people in the Americas have Indian ancestry. And so being Métis and being of mixed heritage is the rule. It is the, 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 the condition of most human beings. How do we construct our identities in this time? How do we situate ourselves in relation to Ghana, in relation to Alberta, in relationship to Canada, in relationship to the NAFTA organization or the Free Trade Area of the Americas or the World Trade Organization or the climate issues and the Kyoto Protocol or the issues of, of nuclear proliferation? How do we, how are we going to, as human beings, deal with these issues in a, in a, in a way that manifest some sort of idea that, that human beings have an inherent right of sovereignty, of self-determination. And I think that this kind of environment is inevitably got to be the type of forum where, where, where these kind of global issues have to be addressed. And, and we have to somehow find a way to situate ourselves in a global community in a way that uh, uh, hasn't really existed before, where, where we have this openness, where we're 1.2 billion people who have access to the internet. Most people on the planet don't have access to the internet. Most people on the planet haven't made a telephone call, let alone experience this kind of, this kind of uh, access to, to uh, communications. So I, I thank you all for uh, staying through it. I, it just seems so hard to walk away for a break, although it would have been good to take a break, but when you have this kind of technology and it's working and it's up and running to, to walk out for 10 minutes and, and, and break, break, break yes. the project, it was great that didn't happen. And Mike wants one last comment. Yeah. Uh, I just want to thank the uh, Halifax people, uh, Mohammed, uh, Steve, or uh, Tony. Uh, I didn't get the other two. Uh, Dave. Dave. Dave and uh, and uh, the girl there, Wilma. Wilma? Uh, she's she's faded away. Okay. Uh, yeah. Hopefully that uh, we do cross uh, paths. I think we have uh, similar um, goals in mind, and uh, so I thank you, uh, Tony, for uh, your your words of wisdom. I learned as much as uh, anybody else here. And I just want to thank uh, the students here at the University of Lethbridge and also uh, Tony Hall for inviting me. And hopefully one of these days I could uh, put this into a textbook, uh, what I'm trying to say. <laughs> and hopefully uh, it, it sells so I could live off royalties and don't have to go to work anymore. <laughs> so uh, thank you very much, Tony. Okay. Mike, thank we'll be in touch. Thanks. Thank you.